Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. going on guys welcome to another episode of bro history at tenry zamoda and danny ev deljabar what's up man M- happy christmas danny happy christmas i'm chilling man how about yourself i'm doing pretty well um we should be releasing this episode on christmas so happy if it is christmas. christmas day and you're listening happy christmas or merry christmas um i hope you're all doing well uh we're in fact recording this a couple of days prior to our usual recording date um, it is Tuesday, the 22nd, and um, right now, just to let you know in advance, I am outside of my normal recording um, environment. I'm traveling, so I'm not, I don't have the same uh, recording setup that I usually have, so if I don't sound super crisp, then it's because uh, I had to make a little makeshift setup right here, but I guess you guys are, are pretty used to our audio being somewhat inconsistent at this point. So I'm sure, <laughs> you know, if you're a fan of the show, you're going to forgive us. We've, we've actually up, got Dan? a system of cans set up, right? Like cans with string in between. And that's how we're recording this episode today. Well, that's how we first started this show. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And, and honestly, the upgrades we've made have not been that significant. No, no, not exactly. No. Yeah. Maybe a little still... easier for us to work with, but. It's yeah. still uh, it's still a very grassroots operation. Uh, <laughs> collectively, the equipment we use is uh, not state of the art. We're we're, <laughs> we're using like 2014 equipment. Yep. But you know that's grassroots for you. Um, but what's up, man? How are you? Good, man. I'm I'm excited uh, to have a couple of short you know weekends, uh, short weeks here. You know for the for the break here, I'm I'm excited about you know uh, Christmas and New Year's and. Um, yeah, man, I, I've got no complaints right now. So, And I'm also really pumped about this episode because I've, I've been having a lot of fun, you know, doing the last couple of episodes with you on these ancient histories for, for a change. Now I'm not like, you know, getting upset at the things that I am reading. <laughs> I'm just kind of like fascinated by everything that I learned. So uh, it's a nice change of pace, man. Yeah. So, um, so far the feedback has been pretty, mostly positive about our ancient history podcast that we've been doing. So um, we're going to be continuing to do that uh, again, at the very least until the end of this year, maybe we'll bleed into next year. If you guys still want this content, but uh, we've been diving into ancient history. Um, we got some complaints about us going off topic sometimes, but um, <laughs> I mean, that's if just you the show. <laughs> expect the show to be something that's perfectly on the rails. Then uh, I'll just tell you right now, we, we frequently, Flying off the rails on topics is in the DNA of this show. Right. So if you want something that's straightforward, stick to the topic, then this show, you're probably not going to like it. <laughs> uh, we frequently will diverge and digress I into s- other topics without warning. I still remember um, the, the one this, episode This could that we end had. up being an argument. 
this whole episode could turn into a debate about the minimum wage as far as we know i mean it might yeah. um I, I still remember the one episode that we had where uh we went off on a tangent about the exhaust ports on the death star I don't even remember the original topic of the show, but we went off on a good 20-minute run about just that. It had nothing yeah. to do with the topic. So pretty, I know. pretty emblematic, I, I think. Um, but during the last two episodes, we spoke about the rise of civil civilizations during the Bronze Age, specifically ancient Suma in the Akkadian Empire, along with the Egyptian Empire, ranging from the Old Kingdom to the rise of the warrior pharaoh, precisely covering a time period ranging between 3000 BC to 1200 BCE, and we ended our last discussion with the great cataclysm of biblical proportions that may have ended advanced Bronze's civilizations along the Mediterranean coast, both in the rubble of the old world, like a phoenix reborn in her ashes, arose a new world. Forging new empires, bounded by the blood of her foes. We're speaking about the Assyrian Empire. <laughs> um, so what's interesting is that prior to the mid-19th century, um, most of what we knew about the Assyrian Empire was from the Bible. Yep. So the reason being is that, um, that many Mesopotamian societies, they used mud brick to build a lot of their structures, which is not sturdy. So we don't have as much lasting uh, evidence or at least like at least structures that have been that have lasted thousands of years just because a lot of them have, have ruined. Mm -hmm. um, in Egypt, they used uh, stone rather than, than mud brick. But a lot of the infrastructure couldn't be found. Therefore, a lot of historians were not even sure that the Assyrian Empire even existed at all. However, in, 18, in the 1840s, so this is somewhat recently, um, archaeologists from France and Britain, um, they started finding palaces. And they, they kept on finding palaces. Mm -hmm. And eventually they would find entire cities and they would be buried in sand. And one of these ancient cities that they found was the city of Nineveh, which was a great city of antiquity um for example it probably had around i mean as you, you never really know what these these ancient numbers but this is what historians estimate to have the city probably had a population of around two hundred thousand people at its max which is so, nuts for pre like sanitation like how they lasted without like either getting the plague or like just absolutely living in their own shit for the entire time is is nuts that you can get a civilization to be that that big in that a time. A pre-industrial civilization yeah. had a city of of over 200,000 people is quite frankly amazing. Um, the other ancient cities that you could point to being really big like this are, are cities like um, Rome, you know, right. cities that come centuries after this. But um, what happened to Nineveh is that it was destroyed and it was it was destroyed by its neighbors and after a century of um, excavations and, and just translation of, of mesopotamian text historians found out that these people were very warlike um i would go as far as say to say that they had a depraved 
sense of cruelty towards other people, uh, city-states, and, and pretty much anyone who rebelled against their imperial rule. I remember the conversation we were having about the Assyrians in the Bible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way that the Bible tells it, they're pretty pretty fucking metal, you know? Uh, they're, the, they're the OG head choppers, you know? These guys evidently made ISIS look like, uh, you know, fucking a ragtag group. These guys were the craziest people of the you know ancient times of the of the biblical era and um we we know that well what corroborated a lot of that biblical message so now we know that that was most likely pretty true yeah (laughs) it's pretty pretty accurate accurate depiction of them Mm -hmm. is that many of the sculptures that we found um in these ancient assyrian cities they depict battles right they depict torture they depict people fighting lions. Um, and when I say torture, I mean like torture that would come from Ramsey Bolton in Games of Th- Game of Thrones. Right. People being flayed alive. Yep. Um, One of their major kings wearing... talks about like uh, uh, sacking a city and taking the, you know, the king of that city or the, the, the regent of that city, flaying him and putting the skin on a pillar outside of the gates of the uh of the um of the city to show everybody like hey this is what happens when you rebel it's pretty nuts exactly it's like like crazy so the ramsey bolton on steroids Mm -hmm. this this was a civilization that was um biblically cruel i think would be a good way to describe it Um, and they sustained themselves through aggressive military raids and, and and more often than not the people they conquered were just completely uh subjugated and and just treated like total dog shit yep um and when i say dog shit i mean that on a ancient bar so heads they had an obsession of putting heads on spikes mm-hmm. um flaying people yep as we mentioned before burning people alive they liked cutting um, people's noses off that was a weird thing that i learned about did you hear that did you read that part I don't know why, but they liked cutting people's noses off. They liked mutilating people's faces um, and poking people's eyes out. Just like really depraved, horrible things yeah. uh, that, you know, we, we don't really do unless you're a sicko, depraved nut. However, the, the impact that they, they leave is that the model that they create um, led them to create the real the first large-scale empire that dominated the Near East. And when I say the Near East, um, I, I'm always referring to the Middle East when I say the Near East, but I I, mean, I don't know if this is a, a, a rule, but at least how my brain does works this out is that when I say Middle East, I mean anything after the, the Arab conquest of, uh, of the region mm-hmm. of, uh, of the Middle East and, and North Africa. Right. Whenever I say the Near East, I mean anything before that. Antiquity, for, basically. Into antiquity. I don't know why. I don't know if that's the right way to refer it. We used to call the Near East, uh, the Middle East, the Near East until about the 1950s anyway. But mm-hmm. I, whenever I say the Near East, I mean the Middle East. But uh, they created the first large-scale empire that dominated uh, the Near East, um, the Mediterranean, uh, Asia, Asia Minor, uh, the Caucasus, uh, so Ar- Armenia, um, in parts of the Arabian Peninsula, along with North Africa and Egypt. And furthermore, they create the the template 
for future empires. Uh, but, but what's more important is that they force states in the Near East into large-scale unity. So what that does is that they make future empires uh, have a easier time conquering lands and subjugating people into one imperial rule. They're the first ones that, on a large scale, they conquer and they put everyone under one state government apparatus, mm -hmm. paving the way for other societies to do the same. For example, after the Assyrian Empire falls, it doesn't take too much, it doesn't really take long until the Persian Empire sweep in and they kind of pick everything up and everything's already in place for them. Like they already have the imperial structure in place. Right. What that allows the Persian Empire to do after that is that they actually are known as a lenient empire compared to the Assyrians. Well, yeah, like, I mean, compared you know, to the Assyrians, the Nazis are a lenient empire. It feels like, you know. The biblical Nazis. Um, yeah, that's basically the, what they are. The, the biblical Nazis. But I think a lot of Western, uh, a lot of Westerners, their perception of the Persian Empire is that it was also like this giant hedonistic slave culture that just con had this uh, uh, depraved, um, craving to conquer every single land. And a lot of that comes from um, the writings from ancient Greece that have been passed down from generation to generation where Greece, ancient Greece is kind of uh, uh, written about as the vanguard as what for Western civilization that prevented the Persians from taking over. In reality, uh, Persia was pretty lenient when it came to their imperial role. Uh, they did do horrible things, but compared to future empires such as uh, these, well, not Syria was in the past, but compared to even future empires like the Roman Empire, or even, well, Alexander the Great kind of kept in the administrative units as a per, in the Persian Empire, mm -hmm. but future empires were worse. Previous empires were worse than the, than the Persian Empire. I'll just I'll just leave it like that. But I have a quote from a historian, uh, Chester Starr, and he's an old school historian who wrote in the early 1900s. Um, the Assyrian period was in reality one of the greatest turning points in the civilized history of the area. The next great empire, the Persian, reaped the benefits it could afford to exercise its sway with more in a more in a more lenient style. Mm -hmm. Now. The brutal methods that the Assyrians uh, live by eventually lead to their downfall. The reason why Nineveh was wiped out like Hiroshima, because basically it was wiped out mm -hmm. like uh, Hiroshima, mm -hmm. um, because they were so ruthless, their enemies hated them. And their enemies hated them so much that they gave them the I guess the equivalent of the Carthage, the Carthage treatment, where they completely wiped out their civilization. Right, they wiped them off the face of the earth. And this predates Carthage so, by quite a bit too. So, um, it's it's interesting because I think the, what you point out makes is super important. They were super brutal to all of their neighbors and all the people that they conquered, um, but almost almost religiously, almost like as a as a foreign policy, like their foreign policy was legitimately terrorism, right? Scare the shit out of people, like brutalize the shit out of people, 
so that they know not to try nothing. And, you know, it, like from a modern standpoint, that sounds like, all right, well, duh, right? Like that's what you do when you're a brutal dictator and you want to, you know, create an empire. You know, you just just like cut off people's heads and put it on a pike and leave it outside the door and then people know not to fuck with you. But what's interesting about that is that the Assyrians were the ones who wrote the playbook on this. And not only did they write the playbook, but they did the craziest shit. And this was just like their foreign policy. And, you know, we going into like studying for this, I had the impression or the idea that, you know, the biblical accounts uh, or even the Greek accounts of the Assyrians uh, were like exaggerated. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, that, that, yeah, they probably killed a lot of people, but you know, that's usually what happens with dictators. And I think, oh, you know, in, you know, 5,000 years or something like that, when we look back at the United States empire, you know, are, are people going to write about us in the same way that they wrote about the Assyrians? But then we go to the source material of the Assyrians by the Assyrians and no, no, they're, they're very unapologetically brutal. Like they talk in great detail and they outline in great detail what it is that they did. And they're, they seem very happy about it. Um, it was like a policy. <laughs> it was their playbook. Like it wasn't just like a like an, uh, a product of their, you know, uh, culture or their per- or, or a particular ruler's personality. It was like all of them, for like fifteen hundred years or more, were just as a policy fucking brutal. And it paid back in space. Exactly. <laughs> when you're when you're that brutal, karma was a bitch. <laughs> your, your neighbors hate you. Yeah. Yeah, your neighbors hate you and they want to annihilate you off. They they will um, freshly conquered people, especially they will want to conquer you in the same way that you conquered them. Um, but let's let's give some historical background. Yeah, on sure. this. So we're going to focus on the Neo-Syrian period. So that's a period that lasts approximately from 1912 B.C. to 608 B.C. Um, and this is when the Assyrians were at the height of their civilization. I think it's important to investigate this period because we learn a little bit more about the birth of modern empire here. Mm -hmm. So let's just pull this back a bit. So documented history in Assyria, it stretches back to 2000 BC. So it was originally a small state centered in the city of Asher in Northern Iraq. And it rose to prominence during the late bronze age. So late bronze age, around 1600 to 1100 you know dates kind of irrelevant right here but you get the picture it just depends Um, on where you want to peg it right Mm -hmm. yeah depends on where you want to peg it uh when it gained independence from its neighboring kingdom uh, the mitanni and after it gained independence it embarked on a program of territorial expansion so the assyrian king asher ubalit um, he cemented Assyria's newfound status by becoming a latecomer to the Great Power Club. And what the Great Power Club is, it's a term, it's used by historians to refer to the power players in the ancient Near East and, and Egypt um, in the late Bronze Age. Hmm. So these power players were Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, the Hittites, and Mitanni. So if you look at a map of this period, of, of all the great powers in the Near East, it kind of looks like a map of pre-World War One Europe. A little bit. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And where the, what Assyria is, 
and we've talked about this in our podcast about the Akkadian Empire and ancient Sumer, um, they're a lot like Germany when it comes in this map. Oh, yeah. So when we think of Germany, and I'm not even going to try to compare them to a moral in a moralistic setting as, you know, to, to Nazis, but as far as their, ge- their how geography shapes different societies Absolutely. to become yeah. militaristic or not. Mm-hmm. So uh, Iraq, uh, Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and the Euphrates Empire uh, rivers, these uh, a lot of foot traffic goes through there. There's no natural boundaries. They don't have the same natural boundaries as Egypt does with these with deserts. It's not like they a mountain range some, or anything like that, you know. Yeah, it's not they like don't a have the mountain ranges. <laughs> yeah, uh, in Persia, um, or, or or in you know, in places like Central Asia, uh, it's just a place where you can walk and march and, and migrate and immigrate to immigrate to. So, this geography creates the fear of being surrounded in world war one germany's greatest fear was being surrounded by its neighbors mm-hmm. by specifically they were their their biggest um national security policy was based off having france to the west of them and having russia to the east of them right. and them both being allies right so they had this fear of being surrounded and dominated uh, the same thing applies to assyria from where they're located and the same thing that applied to their I guess their spiritual successor, the Akkadian Empire, um, in 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 the third millennium BC. In the late Bronze Age, there was this cataclysmic collapse in a lot of societies, which redesigned the political landscape of the Near East. So, for example, the the Hittite Empire disappeared. Right, gone. Just gone. Pretty much immediately, yeah. Um, Egypt was didn't disappear, but it was badly crippled during its war with the Sea Peoples. Um, Babylon took a huge hit. This cataclysm, we spoke about this last episode. Mm-hmm. It's pretty unclear what happened, but a lot of historians point to um, invaders like the Sea Peoples, right? Who eventually became or who some historians believe are the uh, um, the the Philistines in the Bible, also like uh, some some like natural disasters, right? So the the climate actually shifted quite a bit, which caused a whole lot of droughts. Um, specifically in Egypt, uh, the Nile would normally uh, it would normally uh, flood regularly around the same time every single year. And due to some climate changes, uh, that ceased to happen for, uh, I think it was a few decades, actually. And uh, that basically eroded the, you know, the, 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 the idea that the pharaoh was like a, a deity, a god almost, right? And that, that caused a huge decline in his, like, credibility because now he's not predicting, you know, stable flooding, which was the lifeblood for them. And a lot of things were happening like that across the region. Now— in Mesopotamia, the flooding was very fucking random, so it was like harder to to point out. But there were definitely, um, you know, climate uh, related issues, which uh, you know hurt the you know the unified global economy uh, in that Near East and North African uh, region for sure. Right, so one goes down, they kind of all start coming down because they were doing a lot of trading, 
especially in you know uh, Mesopotamia, where while it's called the Fertile Crescent, and you can grow crops there, they lacked a lot of natural resources, so they needed to be able to trade with other empires or just straight up ransack them uh, in order to get what they needed. And if you know a number of them started going under, whether it's because of the sea people, whether it's because of you know uh, uh, climate change, then that starts to affect all of them. Yeah. Um, and let's just say if it was climate change and it led to, even if it was, it was, um, famine in another part of the world, th- that famine could have led to large scale migration, exactly. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which were for, which, which were caused new famine, <laughs> yeah. AKA, AKA the sea people. Right. Um, couldn't they think of a better name than the sea people? I don't know. I kind of like it. Uh, I'm it's, it's know, growing, it's growing on me because it's like so generic, you know, it's like it, we're not pointing to a, like a, a nationality or like a race. It's just just see people. Do you think <laughs> they would have called it what it is in Greece? Like, oh, the Mycenaeans like, or some shit like that, you like know, the, like something like that. So it sounds a little bit uh, cooler, but it's just the fact that it's in English. And it's like the sea people came <laughs> and conquered all these areas. <laughs> sea people. But I, I, I do. I like it, too. <laughs> um, but. During this this uh, cataclysm in in the Mediterranean in the Mediterranean world, um, Assyria is located off the coast, so it's in Iraq. Iraq is landlocked, mm-hmm. or, or at least where they would you know the Assyrian Empire would be located. It's in northern Iraq. Um, okay, they're not touching the sea yet. It's not touching the sea yet. So they're kind of unscathed through this, or at least not as significantly impacted by this huge. Uh, devastation that goes on during the la- during during the end of the Bronze Age, so they're kind of like the U.S. during after World War II, right? So they emerge as one of the major powers that come out of this period, and I mean they took some blows too, right? Like they they were severely diminished as well. It's just not as bad as everybody else. I mean they still existed, unlike the Hittites. Yeah, they, they still existed, unlike the Hittites, who this the. the Think about the scale of like these cities that all had like thirty thousand people living in them, forty thousand people living in them, like large urban population centers for the time, just being eradicated and erased from history, and yep. no one probably just erased. No one knows who what they are. Their their place in history is gone. Um, just hundreds of these settlements just gone. Um, Which, as a side tangent note, when I was um, like listening to that uh, hardcore history that you sent me from Dan Carlin uh, on this particular subject. What was it? Xenon, Zeno something, the the Greek dude who was running from the Persians. Uh, and he just happened to run into the, you know, uh, uh, Nineveh, which we'll talk about later. Uh, and it, he just stumbled across a fucking ancient palace that was basically crumbling that had been left for like 200 years or more. And, you know, the local peoples were telling him that it was the Medes uh, yeah. ancient city. But like, how is it that like, a giant ass city, which, and he was describing it, it was like, you know, fucking 18 mile long, you know, walls around it. How is it that just like a city that's still technically standing, just everybody forgets about it and nobody decides to like, hey, this is pretty cool. I'm going to set up shop here and like live here, you know, like how is it that they just like people just forget about it and then never come back to it? Imagine if the U.S. fell and our and like population was eradicated and uh, some you know, a uh, settler comes to the U.S. with all the buildings still in place, yep. 
And um, the locals there are like, they're like, who built these magnificent structures? And there's like, oh, we think the British made them. Or Canada. I think it might have been Canada. <laughs> it could have been Canada or the Britons. <laughs> yeah. Or the British. We're not, we're not really sure. And nobody lives um, there. <laughs> you know, like it's crazy. It's, like that, that just could happen. It is. It is just nuts. It's one of the moments in history that I would love to see. Like even more so than the, um, than like the pyramids being built. Mm -hmm. I'd want to see what happened during this this uh this just drop in civilization because we know what happened during our nearest dark age after the fall of rome right. like the, the roman civilization fell and, and then you know the the general standard of living declined for a couple of hundred years but we don't like really burn, know right? what happened there um but assyria emerges with um a 300 year reign with very successful, powerful kings, and um, they have six imperial, six uh, six monarchs, beginning with um, Ashurnasirpal, Ashurnasirpal the second, Ashurnasirpal, and he conquers the Near East, or at the very least, he creates proxy states in the region. And, and this guy's a bastard. Yeah. So um, here's a quote because we mentioned that. It came from their text and how like, brutal that they were. They wrote about how what they did. This wasn't like hearsay or he said she said or like like biblical exaggeration. Just just listen to it. Go ahead, go ahead, Henry. So yeah, this is him talking about putting down a rebellion in the city of Hule. With the masses of my troops and my furious battle onset, I stormed. I captured the city. Six hundred of their warriors I put to the sword. Three thousand captives I burned with fire. I did not leave a single one among them alive to serve as a hostage. Hule, their governor, I captured alive. Their corpses I formed into pillars. Their young men and maidens I burnt into the fire. Hule, their governor, I flayed his skin. And I sprayed upon the wall the city of Damamusa, the city I destroyed. I devastated, I burned with fire. Some breaking news. There was a man who was trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border. This was recent. And he was caught with snakes in his pants. He was trying to smuggle pythons from Canada into the United States. Pretty crazy story. And I'll leave you to create your own jokes about that. But uh, we have some other breaking news as well. And that's Harry's razors. So Harry's razors, they're carving their own path in grooming to give you a better designed and better value grooming products. Harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products. So they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge. Guys, I recently hit second puberty. Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. So um, I was using these very crappy razors, and they would get dull right away. And often, I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull, which is bad for everyone. Well, hairy shaving products have changed things for me. So it's a really great quality shave. I never cut my face and uh, my face feels nice and smooth. Also their shaving cream smells really good. I really feel like a new man whenever I use my Harry's razors. These razors are some of the best out there. They're for an awesome price as well. They're German engineer blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half is what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. 
And uh, you have to go with this, the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash brohistory. That's harrys.com slash brohistory for a $3 trial set. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Just fucking, first of all, metal, right? This sounds like some, like yeah. the, the, the lyrics to like a black metal song. and And second of all, Again, just the way that he writes about it, it's like, yeah, I, I killed them all. Um, I, you know, fucking burned them. I flayed the one dude, put a skin on the wall. Yep, I did that. And they're, like, proud about it, you know? Yeah. Well, he goes on. I captured 50 of their warriors I put to the sword. 200 of their captives I burned with fire. 332 men of the land of Nerbu I slew in a battle on the plain. Their spoil, their cattle, and their sheep I carried off. The land of Nerbu, which I set, which I, which is at the foot of Mount Yore, had banded themselves together and had entered the city of Tella, their stronghold, from Kanubu. I departed to the city of Tella. I drew near. The city was exceeding strong and was surrounded by three walls. The men trusted in their mighty walls and in their host and did not come down and did not embrace my feet. With battle and slaughter, I stormed the city and captured it. 3,000 of their warriors I put to the sword, their spoil and their possessions, their cattle and their sheep I carried off. Man captives from among them I burned with fire, and many took as living captives, so slavery. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to post round about the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. The city I destroyed, I devastated. I burned it with fire and consumed it. At the time, the cities of the land of Nerbi and their strong walls I destroyed, I devastated, I burned with fire. Talk about being a little repetitive in his, yeah. in his uh, yeah. poetry. He wants, he, want, he really wanted to like bring it home that he burned 3,000 people. He's... But I guess it's just like the stat. It, it, it was just kind of like the way that you communicated. Oh, yeah, I burnt, burnt, you know, we burnt this city down. Here's another quote. I built a pillar over it, over against the city gate, and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Yeah. And he goes on about just uh, cutting off noses and poking eyes out of their head and 
uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. And this is every, the point is, this is just one Assyrian king, um, Ashur, Ashur Nasipal, but Ashur Nasipal is not even known as one of the worst ones. Right. He's just one of the first ones. <laughs> He's just one of the first ones. A lot of the Assyrian, pretty much every Assyrian king, if you look at their writings or text directly from them, they sound exactly like this. Right. You wouldn't be able to tell one, one, uh, one from another. They all sound the same. Some of them are super matter of fact too. It's just like, yes, I burned exactly three thousand people. I took six hundred slaves. Uh, I ca- I carted off one thousand chariots, and I also took you know twelve hundred cattle and all this other stuff. So it's like in 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 one way it was record keeping, and in another way it was just like gloating about their you know um, their uh, kind of tirades because again. This was their policy. Their policy was straight up terrorism, and they wanted to make sure that they encapsulated how fucking brutal they were, so that people knew, "Don't mess with Syria. Don't mess with us, Syria." I should say. Um, another tactic they used was deportation. Ah, yeah, that was nuts, nuts. So, um, they would what would they would do is that they would take a conquered people, they would just. And then spread them out across the empire so they wouldn't be able to form some type of national identity. Right. Which is pretty smart, I guess, if you want to uh, assimilate people. Right. Imagine it, imagine assimil- if we took over like a bunch of Jets fans and then, uh, you know, sp- sprayed them all over the United States and now they can't worship the Jets anymore. No one worships the Jets, man. <laughs> um. Except masochists. <laughs> um, they deported, uh, for example, tribes of Israel they deported. Um, I am. I mean, the lost so, 10 tribes of Israel are literally because the Assyrians did this to them. They came and, like, wrecked their shit, took them all, and here, put them in place. I actually have a quote from this. So Su- Susan Weiss uh, Bayer quotes, who's a, like a classical, one of the real famous classical historians, uh, deportation was a kind of genocide, uh, murder of not of a person's, but of, of, of a nation's sense of itself. These Israelites became known as the lost 10 tribes, not because the people themselves were lost, but because their identity as descendants of Abraham and worshipers of Yahweh was dissipated, uh, dissipated, dissipated in the new wild areas where they were now, now forced to make their homes. It's unclear where, where uh, the Assyrians actually sent um, uh, the ten tribes of Israel, but uh, a lot of them are apparently supposed to be east of the Euphrates River um, in you know areas like uh, modern day Iraq and Iran, um, as well as some other places. Um, but they generally just spread them out. And again, the tactic here was pretty. I mean. As far as like a playbook goes for you know making an empire makes a, wh- a whole lot of sense, right? Because if you're going to brutalize a set of people, right, uh, one way to make sure that they don't end up revolting again is to spread them up, spread them out, right? And then they would repopulate the cities with their own people, you know, or or they would you know maybe conquer one place over here, you know, deport them to this new city that they just conquered, and vice versa, right? So they make them swap cities. Um, and you know it, it really it really it's an effective it was an effective method 
It yeah, it it certainly was. If you wanted to destroy a national identity, you spread you you created a diaspora. Um, now what are the justifications of of this type of terrorism? Was it religious fervor? Um, I mean, yeah, technically speaking, yeah. Uh, I mean, they they did worship uh, the god Asher, and evidently, um, because Asher wanted. He was like one of many gods, and apparently he was the best of the gods. Everyone's god is the best of the gods, apparently, in this time. But like he was the one, and he wanted all of the lands back where people were worshipping all the other lesser gods. And so the people of Assy the Assyrian people who worshipped Asher um, were basically instructed by religious decree to go and conquer other lands so that they can give it back to their to their god so i guess technically speaking it was religious fervor but if you look at again just the ways that they did this um it almost feels like they liked it you know dan carlin was talking about uh the one the one uh, um assyrian king and on the one hand you know yes what they did was brutal um but you know a lot of empires do brutal things but what the way that they took it a step further was like the one king decided to sit and watch as they flayed people, right? And it's like religious fervor only goes so far until it's like, all right, you're just straight up crazy, you know? Like you, you just you're a psycho. You like this. Well, a lot of people compare. I've seen historians compare them to modern day ISIS, and it's easy to make that comparison yep. because they're from the same region. Mm-hmm. They're also they're from, both pretty brutal. They're, they're both they're both brutal, and they're from the same region. Um, but I don't necessarily think like yeah they they worshipped Asher, who they thought was the one true god, and um, it seems that Assyrian kings were extremely pious. Like um, religious training was part of their education system. However, it was just, I think it was more so just a sense of, of uh, pragmatism on, on their on their end. So what's interesting about the Assyrian Empire is that um, I, I think that they were using this as an instrument of statecraft. Of course. So yeah, it was a policy. Yeah. Holding the empire together was very difficult. Mm -hmm. Any empire is very difficult to hold together. Um, this was an empire that was scattered in some very geographically isolated areas, uh, such as mountains and deserts. So if going down to the Arabian Peninsula, um, scattering across deserts in Syria and deserts in Iraq, um, and then it spreads out all the way to the Caucasus, places like Armenia, as well as in, in parts of Persia, um, these are spread out areas a lot of them are, are are geographically the the logistics and the um, ability to move armies there themselves is a major accomplishment mm -hmm. when you really think of it mm -hmm. but it's very easy to rebel it's very easy to um, have maybe those two years of independence and oh yeah like we're free let's band together with some other local city states i think that they had in their pragmatic view uh sending a message to prevent anything like that from happening was an absolute necessity to hold on to these uh these frontier zones sure and another interesting thing about assyria is that where where it was located where the cities of asher and, and nineveh were located um 
it they didn't really have uh, a lot of materials strategic materials right. to sustain the power that they had even for all the successes they they have on the battlefield so they didn't have um they they lacked hardstone for construction projects mm-hmm. they got diorite they had, from no, elsewhere right mm-hmm. yeah there's no timber yep there mm-hmm. um, no forest timbers used like for, that, for, yeah. for, for for fortifications right. and and just building um there's no grasslands right so no horses no no cows no nothing like that no li- no livestock and in the area itself is has a relatively small population considered to other areas of northern northern Iraq. Um, there's a smaller at that time there was a smaller population than that of the places that are closer to the riverbanks. Right. Um, so they resorted to slave labor. Um, creating slaves was pro- a huge incentive for them to create that work that that labor. Um, the, the fact that Assyria is neighbors had these resources um with the addition of them having no natural barriers which we touched on before it's in the middle of a of a of a of a crossroad of a marchland which is our new media company mm-hmm. name yeah <laughs> uh marchland media it means crossroads or borderlands um because we like to talk about borderlands in like places where conflict starts yep ensure it, it, it just um it put them in a state of like of uh, a paranoia and the in, in constant sense of insecurity. So their solution was to conquer neighboring states and establish a political and, and military presence that ensured the supply of needed materials. And most importantly, they lacked iron deposits yep. and almost all of their enemies possessed iron weapons before they did. Right, right. And kind of before you get into the Iron Age, I, I also want to point out that just as a matter of point, you had to be hard to survive in this area, right? So as we pointed out, I think abundantly, uh, this was a marchland. This was a place where you could easily just get ransacked. And, you know, in our previous episodes about um, uh, Sumer and Akkad, you know, there was constant fighting for thousands of years. Like that was just a a product of the geography was fighting. So you had to be hard. So the Assyrians coming up literally just had to be the hardest of all of them, right? They had to be the strongest, the hardest, the the most the most metal out of all of them in order to just survive. So it, it's it's a product of their upbringing as well. Their comeuppance. Yeah, absolutely. The same could be said for Russia, I'm not Russia, uh, for, for like Prussia mm-hmm. and the military culture that's developed in, in, uh, during the German empire. Absolutely. So, um, iron. So one of the most important stimulus for, for the military revolution that happens during this time was $600 is, was six, <laughs> was the $600, uh, <laughs> stimulus, um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, one of I the most you. important. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the most important. It, it was the it was iron discovery of iron and use of iron. Mm-hmm. And iron, interestingly enough, it's employed as a weapon technology first by the Hittites around three thirteen hundred BC or so. Right. Um, but they also disappeared. Over the, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they disappear. But over the next centuries, it, it spreads throughout the Near East, and it's important to note like all technologies, different parts of the world adopt it at different times. Mm-hmm. So 
while parts of the Near East adopted iron in, in the second millennium, um, regions in Northern Europe, they don't adopt iron until like the sixth century BC right. or so. So technology spreads at different rates in different parts of the world. And a lot of times there's a huge gap in uh, technological progress between regions of the world, especially at this time when there's no mass transit and there's no mass communication. Um, but iron weapons, they were, they're, they're, they're heated and they're hammered into shape rather than being cast. And that makes them stronger. Right. But more importantly, it makes them more reliable than bronze weapons. So it, it, they're, they're just more reliable weapons. They're stronger. And they're also, iron is more available. Right. And it's easier it's to abundant. extract. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's more abundant. So the plentiful supply of, of iron made it possible for these empires to produce these enormous quantities of reliable weapons and um, start fielding these really big armies. So this led to armies uh, practicing conscription on a regular basis. So in our last episode, we spoke about the Egyptian empire implementing conscription. And um, they were, you know, they went from from their early periods in the old kingdom and in the third millennium, they had like one out of 100 men um, conscripted to join the army. When Thutmose III, their greatest warrior pharaoh um, of the Egyptian iron is in power, their conscription rises from uh, one to 10% of the male population. Right. One in well, 10. The conscript mm -hmm. Yeah, one in 10. One in 10. Well, the conscription of the Iron Age made Egypt look like child's play. Right. Um, military service became the legitimate price for for membership in the larger social order, and it was no longer limited to um, you know in, it was no longer limited to defense in times of threat, but it extended to the need to control these far-flung military empires and, and to prevent domestic and, and foreign threats by being ready to uh, project power or project or, or conduct military operations by any at, at any region of the world mm -hmm. to prevent some some Assyrian right. or prevent another society from coming and lopping your head off. It was the, that was the same type of foreign policy that Egypt was practicing right. uh, when they, after they were, uh, they were, occupied invaded and occupied by the hyksos it was the it was so the it birth was, of the standing army really yeah it was it was a birth it was the birth of it and this was this was pre-iron this is now at a time where there's uh more reliable weapons and it's easier to field them with and you're able to field everyone with a iron sword or an iron axe or iron armor um so it's just a, a, a lot more uh, impactful and effective army. Um, but what, what's created in this is that the Iron Age, it gives birth to the national standing army based on citizen service. And this constant flow of conscripts required professionals to train and, and, and lead and integrate citizens into soldiers. Mm -hmm. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna start um, just taking a large part of the population and saying here's a sword, here's an axe, uh, start you know you're not gonna just be like all right, 
come to the battlefield at 10 o'clock and, you know, let's see what happens. Let's see what your skill level is. Right. You're going to require a professional staff to train and teach these people how to march and how to hold a sword and how to how swing it, bow, yeah. how to swing it. Like, you know, what are you good at? Are you going to be cavalry? Are you going to be uh, an archer? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be inf- light infantry? Are you going to be heavy infantry? Are you going to be logistics? Sometimes it came down to yeah. that, you know? Like, are you big and strong? Can you hold a shield in a phalanx? Can right. you, you know, and then teach you these formations because these armies had to be, uh, you know, for example, phalanx, uh, which was being used in Mesopotamia for, for centuries before the Greeks started using them. Um, it requires a lot of cohesiveness yeah. with your unit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a basically you're forming a, a, a kind of wall that's like going to bat. Right, it's like that's basically bumping into each other and hitting each other. It's kind of, I've always thought of these uh, ancient battles and medieval battles uh, with phalanxes and a lot of like shield use and shield walls as uh, offensive and defensive linemen going up Absolutely. against each other, yeah. like trying to, they're they're like I, trying to get get them off the ball or trying to. I'm sure they had similar plays as well, right? I'm sure they were calling. Yeah. I'm sure they were calling sim- similar audibles at you know at the time to get people to move around and, and flank them or, you know, try to get to their, their quarterback, or I guess, you know, their We're commander. Pull, yeah. The, the quarterback is their, is the commander. Right. And a lot of times if you kill the commander, the they would just stop. Over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because most of the thing, the thing about ancient battles that most of the casualties aren't. So when you see the casualty numbers of an ancient battle, it's always, most of the time, it's something like outrageously disproportional. So you'll see like, 2,000 people died on this side and then like 100 people died on that that side, mm-hmm. on the winning side. And the reason is, is because most people don't die in the actual like hand-to-hand fighting. Most people die in a pursuit. Mm. So when a formation breaks in that and the people panic and start the run, right. that's when the cavalry comes start in and starts them cutting them down mm-hmm. yeah. and, and just and knocking them off because they don't have that cohesive unit right. that's protecting them. So um, it's... Uh, it's important. It's important to train your staff. Is is the point? Is uh, where where I'm getting at. Right. So you require that professional army staff. So now that's and a job. Now <laughs> you know there, there's a yeah. whole industry there. You know, and to put this into context, um, arguably the next time nations start creating armies like this, um, after you know the fall of the Roman Empire, where they have a large scale, uh, a large scale uh, foreign army, um, and this isn't like a concrete role, but at least in Europe, we don't see this until like Napoleon, right? Where you take where he's drafting these large scale armies yeah. and, and has professional staffs and general staffs to training them. So these a lot of these ancient armies have the same level of sophistication as mil- militaries from the 18th and 19th century. Mm-hmm. It doesn't apply for everything, but I think kind of generally you can take a military from 600 an Assyrian military from the from the seventh century throw them in the 800s, 800 AD, and they'll wipe the floor. Right. They would absolutely with like ruin. a Saxon army. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. or with a, uh, a Frankish army. Um, so a show I've been watching lately, I've just, I started binging. I, I told you it was the last kingdom. Have mm-hmm. you ever heard of yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you heard of it? Yeah, have you watched I, it? I haven't watched it yet, but I might, I might pick it up. Where, where can you get it? I, now? It's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's, I love it. I've I've just I just I don't know how I just heard about it, but it's really really good. It's about the um, 
it's about the Danish conquest of uh, of England, mm-hmm. and about like the Saxon armies fighting the Danish armies. Yep, it's really good. It's kind of like it has like a a, a swashbuckling main character who's really funny. Um, but one of the things that I think they really do right in that show is that when they show armies, um, they don't really have like all the CGI bullshit, mm-hmm. like in Lord of the Rings, like every <laughs> yeah. character on screen is CGI pretty much. Yeah. Um, even at the end of game of Thrones, I think a lot of that stuff was CGI. Yeah. yeah there's no practical um, people. And also by the last season of game of Thrones, the battle scenes were so dumb. <laughs> yeah. The, the last battle scene well, I think in we Game can, of Thrones. I think we can the, agree the whole the whole fucking series went downhill uh, in those last seasons. But that's the, the last the, the, that battle scene where uh, they're fighting the White Walkers, mm-hmm. where they send the, the Dothraki cavalry. Right, it's like into yeah, the just dark go ahead. at go, night. Yeah, go go kill them. Is perhaps the dumbest scene I've ever right. seen. It's it was the dumbest thing ever. I've seen yeah. in that show. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how. Uh, they were. It, it would have been better not to even show the battle mm-hmm. than to have that, yeah. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Just have it like a low scale thing, like the battle of the Blackwater Bay, right? Where it's like it, the, in the books, it's a lot more grand, but in the show, it's you're only you have like a small set with right. like maybe a hundred guys, a small slice of fighting. Mm-hmm. They would have been better off doing something like that than the shit they pulled yeah. in Game of Thrones yep. season eight and the Battle of Winterfell. Right. But I digress. Something they do well in the show is that they show how small and disorganized these armies are. They mm-hmm. show like, um, like two hundred men is like really really important. They're like, oh, he's raising two hundred men, and that's how disorganized. That's how kind of small a lot of these militaries were right. in the early medieval periods. I feel like um, I've been on a on a subway car with more people. <laughs> you know exactly. Yeah. So. The reason why I'm not totally going off the rails on purpose, (laughs) but the point I'm trying to make is that the militaries that emerge in the Iron Age, um, in the early Iron Age, were much bigger and much more and much more sophisticated and organized in a lot of militaries uh, from like a thousand years after the fall of Rome. Right now. the guy that actually brings brings in, because um, like I said, Assyria. Now we went so off the rails that I need to get back on track. <laughs> so the Assyrian king that first implements iron weapons, because like I said, they weren't using them before, was Sargon the second. Not to be confused with of Akkad. Sargon, he's Sargon of Akkad's son. Not really. <laughs> no, he's not. But but he did he, choose the name because that would help him cement the um uh like his stake to the throne, so to speak, right? To legitimize himself. Uh I don't I don't actually think we we know what his real name was. That was just his like throne yeah. name. There there is he's actually he's a very interesting guy. So Sargon the Second, he is considered by a lot of people the greatest Assyrian king. Um he's the founder of the uh, Sargonid dynasty, which was the last dynasty to rule, uh, rule Assyria before they fell. Mm-hmm. Um, he was son of the great Assyrian king named Tiglath Pilazar III, who ruled between 745 BC to 727 BC. And um, he was actually not the chosen heir. 
but he likely orchestrated a coup deposing his older brother, who was the chosen heir of Tiglath Pilazar. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you say that because he most likely um, chose the name Sargon to have some type of king title name. Like, I am the I am the bloodline of Sargon, the great Mesopotamian emperor. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. Like, my bloodline goes all the way back to the great Sargon. Great Sargon I actually great. do think that he said that. If, if, oh, if really? I'm not mistaken, I think he actually do like did legitimize a claim to that. Like, if you trace my lineage back, because because these Assyri- this, the Assyrian peoples, these ancient Mesopot- Mesopotamian peoples, like they're in, <laughs> these history scales go on for thousands of years, not hundreds of years. So, like, they could say you know that stuff, and and they could be like, yeah, I was uh, I, I'm delineated from Sargon of Akkad you know, 35 times over or something like that, you know, 35 times removed or something. Um, but yeah, he needed some legitimacy because he, because he was the son of a guy who probably did a coup d'etat. Well, to each his own. Yeah. But these people took these type of bloodlines very seriously. Of course. Because blood, it was all about blood. Like, oh, he has good blood. Right. Oh, he has the blood of a king. This guy's a king. Like, right. you know, they would kills you if you had the blood of the king and you were a, pr- a possible threat to mm-hmm. someone's uh, legitimacy to the throne. Right. But this guy, during his reign, they carried out no fewer than ten, ten major wars um, and or conquests or suppressions uh, within a 16-year period. And the result of these, these conquests led to an empire that stretched from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea. It was the largest empire the world had ever seen up to that point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't surpassed until the Persian Empire. And Sargon, he comes to power in 722 BC. And he's actually a really interesting guy from, from what I've read about him. So he was a mathematician. He was an architect. He could speak multiple ancient languages. Yep. And he was a historian. And one of the guys who I've been reading a lot about um, about Sargon II is a, a military historian named Richard Gabriel, who I'm going to be borrowing a lot from him over the next, like, 10 minutes when I talk about him. Um, but I'm going to sort of direct quote. So Sargon II was a collector of texts of the ancient period written on clay tablets and constructed a library to catalog and preserve them. It also seems likely that he edited some of the accounts of the ancient battles with a specific view to making certain the routes of advance described in them were accurate, presumably re- by rewalking the battlefields. So what, what makes that kind of uh, uniquely special is that this guy looked at, he reviewed ancient text or like ancient uh battles and he was like i want to make sure this is right yeah he was like i'm gonna go like a, he like it was like a myth buster of his time right he was like i'm gonna make sure that they wrote this down correctly so he would go and he would walk these battlefields and be like okay like this could have happened here um okay i can see like cavalry coming down this hill right. or oh i can see that you know this infantry position had the high ground right here right. oh or okay that doesn't really make much sense what would he do so he mm-hmm. would um, he was he was an actual 
historian who would do investigative uh uh, he would investigate these battles that, that came down from myth and, and he would try to learn as much as possible. Um, so I just, I found him uh, kind of a, uh, just an interesting character. He was also very pious, as in most Assyrian kings were. So just like a hard dedication to Asher. But I mean, these guys have, uh, when you're a prince, because uh, he was still a prince before he performed the coup on his brother, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're, getting the best education at that time, which was quite good because the ancient Assyrians, like not only were they military power, but they also had, they also had a lot of scientific innovations as well. Mm -hmm. So they were the first to divide years into uh, 365 days. Um, They used the base 12 system. So it's why we have so many 12 based things, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. They were the first to divide circles into into three hundred sixty to uh, three hundred and sixty degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, they something that's really cool is that they preserved a lot of the ancient literature, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh yep. and the Seven Tablets of Creation, yep, yep, yep. which was a story of creation that is incorporated into Genesis by the Jews during during the, their Babylonian captivity. These could have been lost forever. Right. They also destroyed Babylon. So, I mean, I guess, <laughs> uh, you know, give had, and take, <laughs> give and take. Yeah. So I guess they had, they, they, at least they were like, okay, we're going to destroy this place. We're going to, you know, preserve some of their, right. Their we'll, we'll write some we're stuff down, just, you know, we're not total heathens. Right. But so something to take note is like how large, um, how different this animal was in, in far as, um, the sizes of military that we're putting on the field. So in our last episode, these past three episodes, we've kind of progressed. Sargon of Akkad was fielding an army of around 5,400 people, right. which was huge was massive, at the time. Right. This is around 2,400 BC, so the third millennium. About a thousand years later, we have Thutmose III, who's fielding armies that are between 20,000 to 30,000 people. Mm-hmm. That's even huger. Right. And they're also projecting power, you know, within like a 250 mile uh, radius of Memphis, the capital of Egypt mm-hmm. at that time. Now, what the Assyrian Empire is doing, so this is about 600 years, 700 years later after, uh, you know, Egypt's main, uh, you know, height and imperial power, they're putting out armies of 150 to 200,000 men. Right. It's like whole major cities worth of people in an army. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. They're combating... They're com- they're putting out field armies of 50,000. Right. And they're mixing them up with, uh, like, infantry chariots um cavalry uh light infantry 
they were known to uh, mix up their. They had like a really unique system where they um, had these units of both infantry and uh, an archer and archers who would um, it would be like half and half. So you know they'd have the option to either go and kind of get up close and personal, or they could just snipe them. Uh, snipe them. It's it was just a really unique system, and since their armies were so huge, that they were able to 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 do that. Um, it, in modern times, the size of an Assyrian field army was equal to five modern heavy American divisions, or almost eight Soviet field divisions. Yeah, that's nuts. That's a quote I pulled from Richard Richard Gabriel. So when arrayed for battle, the army took up an area of 250 yards across the front. 2,500 yards. 2,500 yards yeah. across the front and 100 yards deep. The Assyrian army was also the first army to be entirely equipped with iron weapons. Mm-hmm. They, all, they invented large cavalry squadrons and could process 3,000 new horses a month. So what they, cavalry wasn't really used prior. I mean, it, it was used, but not like the Assyrians were doing it. Uh, everyone knows the Assyrians um, as the chariot guys, the people who had like these chariot units. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had chariot units, but their main uh, innovation that they had was their, I mean, their infantry was awesome, but they had awesome cavalry. And they created systems to produce horses and, and breed horses and, and have a continuous flow of new horses uh, every single month. They also, like, conquered a bunch of, like, horse step people, uh, and that's how they were able to, like, you know, up their game in the cavalry front. That's how Sargon II dies, too. Yep, but we won't get there just yet. He die, He dies by fighting the Scythians. Mm-hmm. Scythians. Um, so, so to go back to Egypt, so the Egyptian army of uh, 1300 BC had a range of 1250 miles. So by t- 1250 miles by 200 miles or more than twice the range of the earlier period. Assyria has conducted military operations from Asher to Susa to Thebes, an area comprising 1250 miles by 300 miles. So they were able to It's 100 miles broader. Than, yeah. than the Egyptian army of that range. And one of the biggest innovations that they had was the was their footwear. Right. They had the best Jordans. They had the best they had the they had uh fresh Nikes. So the Assyrian army was the first to improve on the military footwear of ancient armies. The Assyrian soldier wore a knee-high leather jackboot with a th- with thick leather soles, complete with hobnails to improve traction. The boot also had thin plates of iron sewn in the front to provide it for protection for the shin. The high boot provided effective ankle support for troops who fought regularly in rough terrain and served as excellent protection in cold weather, rain, and snow. The boot kept foot injuries to a minimum. It is one of the primary reasons why the Assyrian army was able to move easily over rough terrain in all kinds of weather. Following the Assyrian lead, military boots of various designs became standard equipment for all the later armies of the Iron Age. The growth and tactical flexibility of small units was also evident in the ability of armies to develop an all-weather capability for ground combat. 
the Assyrians regularly fought in the summer and winter months and even carried out siege operations in the winter. Sargon's campaign against the Uratu, which is modern-day yeah. Armenia, um, and this is interesting because the Uratu, 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 so I pronounce it somewhat right. I'm, for anyone listening for the first time, um, if you're getting steamed up about my pronunciations, you should listen to other episodes <laughs> because I pronounce... I well, I pronounced Danny's last name wrong for a year into the show. Right. <laughs> um, and I've known Danny for like eight years at this point. Yeah. So um, there's they they treated them kind of like how the Nazis treated Jews. Like they had all sorts of texts calling them like the what's the the uh, troop the the the. Uratru problem or the final solution oh, the for them. The Uratu problem, yeah. yeah. The Uratu problem, mm-hmm. the final solution. I'm not sure if Hitler took that from the Assyrians or not. Um, Maybe he did. He was the student of history. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose so because they, they would have discovered the uh, you know cuneiform tablets by then. So, but they just they just wanted to eliminate. These were the they were peoples in Armenia in. And kind of like the around, kind of like the Caspian Sea, Azerbaijan, Iran area, mm-hmm. across the Zygros Mountains. And they traveled all that way just to kill them all. Right. They they, they went up and journeyed all the way there. Like, meh, we got we to gotta kill them all. Um, but Sargon's campaign provided a textbook example of... The development of improved tactical proficiency. The campaign was conducted almost 600 miles from the Assyrian capital in the late fall. Sargon's army, complete with contingents of infantry, cavalry, and heavy chariots, traversed mountains, streams, and rivers on the route of march. Travel through the mountain passes was complicated by heavy snows. One pass was so high and heavily blocked by snow that the enemy did not bother to defend it. Sargon negotiated the pass, caught the enemy by surprise, fought and won a major battle, and still had enough combat power left to besiege and capture a fortified city. Um, so there's a really interesting story about this battle that I that I read where it's, I don't know, a lot of this sounds like some hype, but you know they this, there's a story about how Sargon and his army, they had to uh, go over these mountains and go through all this pa- these passes, and when they finally arrived to fight, they're all exhausted. I'm sure they would be. They're yeah. just like, fuck and, and Sargon turns around and he sees it he's like shit he's like all these guys are so tired these guys are all fresh I don't know what to do like this is gonna be a tough fight um like I usually we'd be able to beat them like I need I need somehow to like spark up some energy before we're screwed we have the surprise but they have just fresh legs yeah the, the fresh legs mm-hmm. right now so according to Sar, according to the historical tablets, um, who knows how real this is or not? A lot of this stuff that comes from kings, I tend to think, is exaggeration rather than you fact. You give him the space jam, but Sargon, order, right? He leads a cavalry charge. <laughs> He's like, oh, "I got it. Oh, I'm gonna put the team on my back," and he leads a cavalry charge. And all of his troops, seeing their their king lead this cavalry charge, they get invigorated with energy. And then they, you know, in the words of Sargon, uh, as you can probably 
imagine it's probably something you know about pillars of corpses yeah. <laughs> like he burned all the maidens pillars and of like, corpses yeah. and flayed enemies yeah. and all that mm-hmm. stuff um happened but sargon was one of the syrian kings who was like had some kind of mutual respect for uh you know he's like yeah i flayed them and killed them but you know they, you know they were pretty cool you know they right they took their flaying like a right. man he was that type of of uh of a serious because well, he was a scholar <laughs> you know he was like I, yeah he didn't he didn't whine like a bitch when i uh burnt him alive and uh they had pretty nice books on on hand too so i was able to re- get some good reads in oh some nice some nice books oh man but he wasn't he didn't destroy babylon um it was i believe his babylon was destroyed later they had a really interesting relationship in Sargonid, with babylon sargonid line i think that destroyed Babylon. It was it was so I forget which who destroyed Babylon. Uh it was I'll Google it. Oh, his Sinasherbib. 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 Sinasherbib is a is a guy who destroys Babylon. But it's interesting because Assyria and Babylon had a relationship almost like how the Romans had a relationship with ancient Greece. So, yeah, the Romans were at, at the height of Roman power or when after the Punic Wars, when Rome becomes like the regional power in the Mediterranean and they're able to conquer uh, Greece with just a couple of legions, really. Um, it's a whole it's a really interesting story. The Roman conquest of mm-hmm. Greece, it's it's like kind of this engulfing thing that happens over a 50 year period. But I'll save that for another Great. show since people think we go off topic too much. <laughs> um, yeah. So what what happens is that um, they, or, or what the relationship is, is that it's kind of like how Athens is to Athens. Rome. Athens is to Rome. Is how Babylon is right, to Right, because that, that was like the, the symbolic or like cultural, you know, epicenter of Mesopotamia for like ever, right? Uh, I, you know, you might re- recall one of the ancient wonders of the world was there, the Hanging Gardens at Babylon, you know, um, it was super culturally relevant. Um, and even though they were at odds with one another, you know, they, they would often kind of pull their punches as far as like when, when they would wreck, you know, their, their Babylonian neighbors, they wouldn't totally decimate, um, the city of Babylon. Um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be until, uh, Sennacherib, as you said, um, that they actually did raise Babylon. Um, but it, it was of cultural uh, um, importance, just just like, as you said, Rome uh, admired uh, a Greek culture and even adopted a whole lot of Greek culture. They, they you know, took their cues from the art, from the culture, uh, from the pottery making, from the sculptures. Um, I mean, even their gods are pretty pretty damn similar uh with just different names and stuff like that you know um but they were just more militarily powerful (laughs) like the romans were more militarily powerful than than the greeks as were the assyrians way more militarily powerful than than the babylonians yeah they um apparently throughout their history they they had a kind of a longer rope with Babylon because they didn't want to ever have to destroy the city because they respected it so much. But eventually they, uh, they had a King who did, who did, who did sack Babylon. Uh, but at least a lot of the, the, uh, things were preserved. Yep. Most of it. 
so in short um assyria is the assyrian empire when it falls because it does fall and what's unique about this is that it's not like the roman empire where roman there's kind of like a a, a peak of rome that, that happens and like as far as like territorial expansion it happens somewhere in like 100 like 89 ad or or like a 180 during the time of market marcus aurelius which i believe was emperor from like 150 ad to 189 ad somewhere along those lines i forget the exact date but that was like the the, the height of their geographic empire i'm not so sure about the standard of living but at least height of uh, expansion that's how a lot of historians judge the rise and fall of an empire or if an empire is rising or if they're in decline it's by their territorial expansion Mm -hmm. they fell when they were at their height and they fell fast which makes it interesting and they fell like a like a like a deck of cards Mm -hmm. like a ton of bricks they fell rome had this this 300 year decline right the slow, the slow burn, where uh, there was a lot of different reasons as far as civil war and corruption in the government, and um, you know, so a lot of people b- b- uh, blame barbarian invasions. It was like a something that lasted over three hundred years, and you know the empire split into mm-hmm. two, and in, in the eastern western western empire, um, this was just. Boom. Yeah, it's it was gone. like for, the, and for those who uh, like or follow astronomy, it's it's com- comparative to, you know, uh, the death of stars, right? So very large stars like Assyria, you know, they end in a supernova, right? Like a giant explosion as opposed to Rome, which kind of you know becomes a red dwarf and like fizzles out after a while, you know, slowly and quietly uh, into space. Um, yeah, the, the Assyrians were definitely the supernova for sure. They were, they were certainly a supernova, and the reason why they fall so hard is because there's a civil war. So, um, Asher, Asher Bonapol, Asher Nasrpal, um, Asher Asher Nasrpal, no, it's Asher Bonapol, Asher Nasr Bonapol, one of those guys. Don't worry about it. Asher, no, that's a different one. This is Asher, ba- but Asher Bonapol. Or was it Sinchar Ixum? No, that was one of the commanders. Never mind. That was Asher Asher Bonapol. I have it written down. Okay, I believe it was Asher Bonapol. Asher Bonapol. <laughs> Got it. When he dies, um, there's a civil war that breaks, and this happens all all the time. Yeah. Every time a king dies, this, this yeah. happens all the time. And so, what happens when there's a civil war? All of the rulers. All, all of the um, states that have been conquered by Assyria are like, oh, there's a civil war. I think it's time to take advantage of this. And the uh, an alliance is created mainly by the uh, Babylonians and the Medes right. of like of Persia. They were they were the dominant culture before the Persians took over Iran. They created an alliance, and they didn't, wait. Then the Medes take the Medians, over Babylon first, and then, but like the Babylonians helped them to do that, yeah. right? And then they ruled over Babylon, but like kind of let them do their own thing also. And then they were like the the main players. Isn't that how it went down? 
Yeah, it was the Medes who destroyed the Assyrians. Right. But also the Scythians. The Scythians? The Scythians? It was, it, Scythians is correct. But it was, it was mainly, most people credit the Medes for destroying, because the Medes were badass right. too. They ravaged Assyria, and they destroyed all their major cities, and they sacked Nineveh. And when they sacked Nineveh, they sacked Nineveh the same way that the Assyrian Empire sacked their neighbors. They killed everyone, and they they gave them the Carthage treatment. They burned it to the ground. They they crushed all the bones. They turned it to dust. They put salt in the fields. They put prickly prickly uh plants in the in the you know areas and nothing would grow yeah it was all all crazy in the, in the moral of this story is is the they were destroyed because of their foreign policy right. because they were so right. brutal and this is ties into the overall theme of our of our of our podcast of, of like foreign policy and geopolitics when you act like assholes other gonna pe- other countries are gonna treat you like assholes right. too. Your neighbors are going to right. hate you. And the moment there's an opening, they're gonna strike at you, and they're gonna do to you what you did to them, and probably worse. And that's why nobody knows what Nineveh is, or nobody knew what Nineveh was. Nobody knew what Nineveh is, but most people don't know what Nineveh right. is. Uh, the average history student doesn't never heard of Nineveh unless you were. You probably heard it in a class, in a, in a history class. I'm passing, but it might, you never it might show up in the Bible. Actually, now I'm thinking of it. Yeah, it does show up in a Bible, but most people—it's an ancient city that has been forgotten. And the sacking of Nineveh was maybe one of the most important historical events ever, because it ended that old world, right? It ended, it ended, it was the end of the world that was, that was dominated by either Egypt or dominated by uh, Sumerian or Sumerian city-states. And the structures that the Assyrians put in place led to the Persian, led to the, uh, rise of the Persian Empire because they were able to come in and take those structures that were already in place and implement something that worked a little bit better, a little bit nice, a nicer empire to go back to what we were mm-hmm. talking about prior. Mm-hmm. And the Persians are eventually conquered by the Alexander the Great and then split up into a bunch of different countries when Alexander the Great dies. But Alexander the Great, he connects the east and the west together so it's kind of like the bridge between the old like the very very old old world and the newer old world old old world (laughs) yeah yeah totally like the it was like the 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 end of like the biblical biblical ancient history like it's only an oral mythology like it's so ancient that who cares? It's so whenever the hell back right. when to kind of the new period when it was like, oh, the ancient Greeks and Sparta. Right. And like, oh, this is the stuff that's not that far back where we can actually put people in our right. shoes. History. Um, so I think it's interesting 
in that aspect. I don't know if yeah, you agree. Yeah, for sure. And that. I think what's interesting about it, you know, you brought it up a little bit in passing a little earlier, but like, you know, you don't know what, like we, for the most part, we don't know about the Assyrian empire. Most people don't know about it. And uh, there was a question that we never asked out loud, you know, in our notes here, but like how many Assyrian people do you know? They do exist by the way, right? Like there's Assyrian, actual Assyrian people that claim, you know, uh, an unbroken lineage to, you know, exactly these people like 6,000 years ago or whatever. Um, but, um, but like they were utterly, utterly scattered to the wind, you know, uh, and, and destroyed and forgotten about. Uh, and it wasn't until we started doing like modern archaeology that we started digging up all of their plates. Can you imagine being the guy that, you know, you found all these like steels and all of these, you know, uh, uh, cuneiform tablets and you didn't know what the hell it said, right? Until they find the Rosetta Stone and we're able to like back translate it. And then you're the guy that finally translates one of these texts. And it's like, I am Asher Nasser Paul. And uh, today I went to, you know, my neighboring city and I totally ransacked them and I burned them and I cut off their fingers and I flayed them. And you're like, what the fuck? Who the fuck are these people? Like, what the fuck did I just find? You know, um, and it's nuts because like these people technically still exist and, and most of them are actually Christians now. Um, uh, and I want to bring this up because I found this super interesting. Do you remember when we were doing the episode a couple weeks back, um, on the election and we were looking through, uh, Trump's, the yeah, the Chaldeans, Chaldeans right? I found yeah, out they're Babylonians. Yeah, dude, I found, so there's, they're from Mesopotamia, the ancient Chaldeans, right? But I found out why, uh, he had like a, a focus group or like a, you know, a set of supporters that were Chaldeans and it's because, uh, evidently the largest diaspora of Chaldeans are in like Detroit, Michigan. Huh. <laughs> so, you know, obviously swing state, you know, um, but it, it was just so wild to me because when we were looking through this uh, for that episode, we were looking through like, you know, who are these like focus groups, these like, so, like, you know, blacks for Trump and like, you know, truckers for Trump and like police for Trump and, and like all these things. And then we kept going down. It's like Assyrians for Trump chaldeans for trump i'm like we didn't even know what a chaldean was right and then we had to google it and we we learned that it was like previously like an ancient mesopotamian culture uh and now we're doing this episode on it and i'm like oh it all makes sense now <laughs> um i see <laughs> well unfortunately the chaldeans weren't able to get them ahead no. <laughs> no no they weren't um no. <laughs> so it's uh yeah, that's our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Is there anything else that we need <laughs> I don't to go think over? So. No. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I had a lot of I really ancient Assyria is one of my favorite ancient civilizations. Um, so I am enjoying doing these podcasts on um and I know Danny does as well on doing these uh ancient history podcasts. So I Keep on telling me if you like them or not. Um, rate and review the podcast. Um, let us know if you like us doing these shows on ancient history. Um, we'll do more if you guys are enjoying them. We want your feedback. We got good feedback so far. Uh, but rate and review the podcast. Give it a five-star review. Five. That is the number one way to help us grow the show. It grabs the most attention of the show. Uh, and it helps us with with SEO and all that type of st stuff behind the scenes. So rate and review the podcast, um, five stars, preferably. And 
you can also join our Patreon, uh, our Patreon of Bro History. It should be in the show notes. Uh, we have early episodes. Sometimes we get some exclusive content in there. Not as much as lately, but we do try to get some exclusive content in there. Uh, but you also get access to our Slack group, and our Slack group's a lot of fun, um, where we talk shit and talk about politics and stuff. Uh, so you can support, you can join that for a dollar a month. Uh, and then, yeah, that's pretty much everything I needed to plug. I, I hope you guys had fun and, uh, give us your feedback. Oh yeah. And happy Christmas. <laughs>